0: to see all of you here today. Thank you for coming once again to next on a Sunday morning. Uh, this is one of my favorite things to do is to be able to stand up here and teach a lesson and talk to you guys and I just I love it. And I'm grateful for the opportunity and I'm I'm glad that y'all keep coming although people are leaving now. So, so last week Michelle Stokes stood up here and told her story here and next and folks she did an amazing job her presentation was great um her message about discouragement michelle was incredible and uh, if you weren't here it is available online i encourage you to go check it out listen to it on the podcast it'll do you some good okay so day five in our current series Losers Like Us it comes from the book, Losers Like Us, Redefining Discipleship After Epic Failure by Daniel Hochalter. And I'm going to keep the review real short today, uh, but I do want to go over our theme verse from First Corinthians, chapter one, verse twenty six to twenty eight in the message. And it says, take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you, not many influential, not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies? So each week we're looking at one of the twelve disciples and identifying what makes him a loser and asking this question. Why this guy? Why would Jesus pick? this guy to be on his team. And we've decided that one reason that Jesus did this was to give the rest of us some hope to affirm that His love and desire is for the real version of you and not the Sunday morning church social media polished version of you. Not only does Jesus love the real version of you, but He wants to use the real version of you and he has a purpose for that hot mess that is looking back at you whenever you look in the mirror and he wants to give your mess a mission and I just say thank you Jesus just like he did with the 12 disciples so so far We've looked at a total of five disciples, and if you missed any, I want to encourage you to go back and check out the podcast, but let's go through them again real quick. Nobody number one, James, the son of Alphaeus, who we call the other, other James. Nobody number two, Judas Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot. Andrew the Shadow Dweller. And last time we met, we talked about Philip the Pragmatist. Today... We want to move along a little bit. And I want to talk to you about the Uber loser. The Uber Loser. The biggest loser. The super loser. Guy by the name of Matthew. Now, some of you Bible scholars in here, like Sister Sister Kim, y'all, y'all are thinking, now look, Jason, this guy, he's got a whole book of the Bible. It's not even one of those short books. It's like it's one of the four Gospels. He's got a whole book of the Bible named after him. How is this guy a loser at all, much less the biggest loser? So we want to take some time today to look at Matthew, and I'm going to give you some historical and social insight today. Uh, If you normally fell asleep in history class, today might be a bit of a challenge. Uh, So go ahead and you know, work on your grocery list or update your Pinterest or check your fantasy football matchup. See if Bash Pro has any good sales this week. I'll do my best to let you know whenever it's time for you to zone back in and join the rest of us so Jesus can talk to your heart. Amen. And as we often do, I'll give you one, just one very simple next step for this week to, just to help you focus on something that'll be spiritually productive. So The Uber loser, the biggest loser. The term Uber that we're talking about today, this does not refer to, nor is it associated with the Uber transportation platform that's become so ubiquitous in our society today. Anybody use Uber? Anybody? I see a few hands. Uber users. I've never done it. It's on my bucket list, though, because I live on the wild side. I'm going to Uber one day. But we're not talking about that Uber. We're talking about Talking about the original Uber. Uber is a German word, and it was first coined by this guy named Friedrich Nietzsche in 1883. And he wrote about something called the Ubermensch. The Ubermensch, or Ubermen in English, the Ubermen. And it was the idea that there would be this superior man of the future that would rise above conventional Christian morality and And create and impose his own moral values. That was Nietzsche's idea. That's where this term Uber came from. Uber literally means over or above in German. So in German you would say the the roof is over my head. You would use the word Uber. In English, the way we use it today, we use it to denote like this outstanding or supreme example of a particular person or thing. She's an Uber babe. Dude, Uber babe, three o'clock. Y'all have never said that before. Me either, unless I was talking about my wife. Got out of that one. Uber nerd. Or uber loser. In a series on losers, the disciple Matthew, ladies and gentlemen, he was he was the uber loser. He was the super loser, the supreme loser, the biggest loser. He was a loser among losers. This was the guy that whenever they picked teams for dodgeball in middle school, the team that had all of the other losers on it groaned on the inside whenever Matthew wound up on their team. He was a loser that was so despicable that even other losers couldn't stand him. And how is that even possible? With this series, guys, look, I get it. Nobody, and we've been over this before, nobody wants to be thought of as a loser. I don't want to be thought of as a loser. And yet here, y'all keep coming back Sunday after Sunday, and you come in here and you hear this, and here I am up here trying my best to get you to self-identify with a loser or as a loser every week. But this one, this one is tough. This one's hard because I don't want to identify with this one. Because this guy is a bigger loser than, than anybody. His loseranity is so obvious. He was a tax collector. Who likes a tax man? Answer? Nobody. Not even his own mother likes him. I'm a grumpy taxpayer, y'all. I, I, I don't like it. Whenever I look at my pay stub every month that comes to me from Livingston Parish Public Schools, and I look at the amount that they said I made, and then I look at that other amount, which is how much actually went into my bank account, I get grouchy. It's not hard to despise the tax man. By show of man, show of hands, who loves to see the tax man coming? Who loves to get the phone call from the IRS that says... We've chosen you for audit or to get that. let who, who loves that? We don't like it and we don't like them. We like jokes about it. My favorite is the hospital gardener shows up at work one day and there are these two renowned surgeons digging around in his flower beds. And he says, have you gentlemen lost something? And they say, no, we're doing a heart transplant for an IRS agent. And we're looking for a stone that would be appropriate. Now I've never been audited, I've never had to deal personally with a tax man, but our school was audited several years in a row because a former employee had um, committed some alleged malfeasance with some public funds. And now this was about 10 years ago. We were audited by the state. It took several weeks. And and those people would show up every day. And this, this person no longer works for us. But for three years afterward, they came in and audited us every year. And it was different people every year, but they were all the same person every year. They were not pleasant. They were not warm. They were not gregarious and friendly. They weren't bubbly personalities. And I hope I never have to deal with those people like that ever again. And I, I know they were just, they were doing their job, and I'm sure they were all highly qualified. They were well trained, but they were scary, y'all. It was scary. And they all shook hands with that dead fish handshake. Y'all know what I'm talking about? All of them. But as scary as they were, the people that came to see us at the school would have been like Mother Teresa compared to the tax collectors of the New Testament time. I'm going to give you some historical perspective. So this is that part for you people that didn't do well in history. You can go ahead and zone out and I'll tell you when you can come back. But tax collectors today, they, they don't work on commission. They, they don't get a percentage of the money that they collect for the government. But in Jesus' day, the tax collector, he had a personal stake in the matter. Uh, and and they were, there were very few laws to hold him in check. He worked for this all-powerful Roman government. And, and he was sworn to deliver a certain amount of tax money to that Roman government every year. And if he couldn't collect that amount of money from the taxpayers, then he had to pay it out of his own pocket. He had to make up the difference with penalties. So, and, and, and even though the, the tax rates were often regulated by law, typically those laws were unpublished and they were unknown to the average citizen. Man, does that sound familiar right now? So the tax man just quoted a price. The irony here is killing me. And the taxpayer had to pay. Even whenever that amount was based on government corruption and loopholes. And so for the taxpayer, it was just a lose-lose situation. And and there was no legal process. There there was no whistleblower protection laws. And and besides, who are they going to complain to anyway? They were Jews. Were they going to complain to the Romans? Please. Wouldn't do any good. But for the tax collector, this was a a legal, government-sanctioned, get-rich-quick scheme. He had... Great incentive, to ju- great incentive to just squeeze as much money as he could out of every taxpayer. And it, really his only limit was in how much his imagination thought he could get away with and, and not get caught. So for the Jewish taxpayers that were living under this Roman occupation during New Testament times, it was even worse because the person who's collecting their tax money, is a fellow Jew. And therefore a traitor. And there's no reason to believe, guys, from Scriptures that Matthew was any different from any other New Testament tax collector. He was a traitorous sellout who was exhorting his own people for personal gain. And because his whole profession was based on fleecing God's people He would have been viewed as a traitor, not just against the Jews, but against Yahweh himself. This was a whole new level of sleaze. And for all of these reasons, the Jew, we think we hate the tax man. They hated the tax man because he was a turncoat. He he was an extortionist. He was a cheat. He was a liar. He was a heartless jerk. And you wanted to kill him, but you couldn't touch him. Because he was protected by the Roman government. So to the Romans, Matthew and those like him, they performed an important service. But to the locals in his hometown, he was the lowest of the low. So what the Jews did was they responded to tax collectors with the only payback they had available. They couldn't punch him, they couldn't hit him, couldn't kill him. They had to put up with him. So what they did was they resorted to a level of social and religious shunning. Tax collectors were put in the same category with drunkards and prostitutes. They were not permitted to testify in Jewish court. Just like the drunkards and the prostitutes. And they were not allowed to enter the Jewish synagogue just like drunkards and prostitutes. So they had no way to worship God in the ways that was required by Jewish law. I wonder if Matthew's life was lonely. As a tax collector, he would have been shunned, avoided, hated, Prohibited from participating in just normal religious and social practices of the people. He he wasn't going to church on Sunday morning. The Romans despised him because he was a Jew, but they used him. And the Jews despised him, but shunned him. Now, here's a way I think. This is going to get a little dangerous because I'm giving you insight into what is here but for me matthew's situation was a cake that he baked you know you made your bed matthew now lie in it kind of thing matthew you you chose personal profit over fellowship with god and fellowship with god's people you you could do something else you don't have to be a tax collector See, Matthew, whenever it came down to God and money, you said, show me the money. So sympathy for Matthew? I don't think so. I mean, he had his wealth, right? And if he was lonely, then he could go hang out with the other scumbags like him. And if he suffered pain due to his own ungodly choices. Well, he had it coming, right? But then, Matthew meets Jesus. Okay, so you zoner outers <laughs> come back. Come back to us. Quit pinning Pinterest and pin your eyes up here. Come back. Listen, listen. Matthew's own Gospel. It's his own Gospel and it tells it like this. It's, it's found in Matthew 9. Matthew's sitting at his tax booth. Right? He's... he's it's your local equivalent to the to the IRS office. And Jesus starts walking over. Now, I can only guess what the other disciples would have been thinking at this point. But in my mind, it goes a little something like this. Oh, man, here it comes. Here he it comes. It's about to get real right now because Jesus, the Messiah, is about to go beast mode on this tax collector. And he doesn't even know it's coming. Jesus is about to crow hop this guy right here in front of everybody. You, you, you get him, Jesus. You get him. You, you turn the tables. You, you set things right. You set him straight. You give him what he's had coming for a long time. Yeah, Jesus. Leprosy, Jesus. Hit him with some leprosy. That's what he needs. Get him with some of that Old Testament stuff. Because we know you got the hookup. You got like those 10 plagues. Get him with the frogs. The snakes, Jesus, get him with the snakes. Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and brimstone, all just get him, Jesus. Imagine just the anticipation. I know I would have. Jesus is going to get the tax man. And then, imagine the horror as they hear Jesus say, The last thing that they would have expected. The last thing that they wanted to hear. The last thing that they would have ever imagined him saying, Jesus looks at Matthew who is sitting in his tax booth, fleecing God's people and says. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Really? Jesus? Come on, man. That's not that's not fire and brimstone justice at all. That's not even a few flies and frogs. That's nothing. There's no rebuke in that, Jesus, there's. There's no chastisement. There's no condemnation. There's no demand for repentance or restitution. So instead of frying this guy. Crispy like chicken. That all of us want to see happen. Jesus you give this guy. An invitation. Jesus you just gave him. The same invitation that you gave to the rest of us. Surely Lord. In your more reasonable moments, you can see exactly how unfair, how inappropriate, how questionable and unreasonable you're being. I mean, I know that none of us are perfect, but this guy, he's real bad. I mean, he's he's way, way worse than any of the rest of us. And to their frustration and to their horror, Matthew says nothing. He simply gets up from his tax booth and he follows Jesus. His decision is instant and it is final and it may seem like this spontaneous, even careless decision, but... See, here's what we know about Matthew. He was a tax collector by choice, so that means he was a very shrewd profiteer. He was able to see and analyze a situation like that, and he knows exactly which bridges he's burning whenever he gets up from that tax booth. Almost like he's just been sitting there in that tax booth just waiting, hoping, praying that somehow someone would come along and offer him a way out of the life that he was in, and a way into the life that he always wanted. And so Matthew walks away from an empire. Not just his cushy job, not just his wealth, but also the safety and protection of Rome. He walks away from that, and he walks exposed and vulnerable into the very community of people that he had been cheating and betraying. And he gives up everything for the call of one man. This controversial rabbi named Jesus, who doesn't even have the support of the religious and political leaders of the day. And it's a frightening new position for Matthew because now he has no one on his side. The Jews have never been on his side. Now Rome's not on his side. The only thing he has on his side is Jesus. And it's all because Jesus said follow me now matthew's response i think speaks volumes about his heart because immediately what he does and this is still in matthew chapter 9 he he invites jesus to come to his house and eat a meal and it wasn't an ordinary meal this was like a major blowout because matthew invites all of his friends Which would have been others like himself. The the human debris of society. The unwanted. The other cheaters. The other traitors. The other outcasts. The other sinners. And Jesus doesn't seem to mind a bit. The Pharisees did. Oh, they minded a whole lot. Because to them, Matthew's celebration with all these other sinners was a disgusting event. One in which Jesus, who was supposed to be this religious teacher, he should have known better than to even be a part of this whole thing. But for Matthew, this wrongdoer who's just been accepted and invited in by God, oh, it's time to throw a party. And these poor disciples, the rest of them, they're just kind of caught in the middle. Picture this in your brain. They're at this party with all these... With a basket full of deplorables. You're welcome for that. And now here come all of the religious muckety mucks. And all of their lives they've been taught. You respect the traditions of the Pharisees. Just like it's the law of God itself. Right? So when the Pharisees ask the disciples. Why is this Jesus that you follow here? associating with all these other deplorables, with all these other castoffs. Apparently, they, they don't know what to say because they don't say anything. It's nothing recorded in Scripture. Jesus answers for them. Matthew nine twelve through 13. On hearing this, on hearing what the Pharisees had just asked, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Y'all, look at the contrast here. Matthew This this outcast, this traitor, this liar, this cheater, this extortioner, he makes this total turnaround and he's experiencing the thrill of acceptance, probably for the first time in a long, long time. He feels accepted and welcome and invited, and he's extending that to other people that he knows need it, too. And yet, here I am, though I'm just another sinner saved by grace, I'm just like the other disciples judging Matthew and unwilling to accept him. I mean, I know I wasn't any good, but I wasn't bad as this guy. Here I am questioning Jesus silently as to whether this whole thing's even a good idea. I mean, come on. Even common sense tells you that when you're launching a new ministry, the last thing you need is the bad PR that comes along with adding a known sleazeball like Matthew to your church staff. Okay? Okay. I had some fun with this. I'm starting a church. And uh, the first people that I call to be on my church staff are Joe Biden, Anthony Weiner, Bill Clinton, Charlie Sheen, Howard Stern, Hugh Hefner, Harvey Weinstein, Tiger Woods, Dennis Rodman, Miley Cyrus, Lindsay Lohan, Paris Hilton, Pamela Anderson, Caitlin Jenner, all of the Kardashians. And what the heck, let's just go ahead and throw in Jim Baker and Al Sharpton. Anybody offended yet? Who's coming to my church? You'd almost have to, right? I had more fun making that list. It's the best part of the lesson. You can just zone out from here on out. Guys, the disciples, must, they must have been floored by Jesus' latest draft pick. At least one of them had to be outraged. Remember Simon the Zealot? As a zealot, he would have hated two groups of people. Romans and Jews who sympathized and collaborated with Romans. But now, these two men get to follow Jesus together. They would have to eat, sleep, live, and work alongside each other and accept each other as brothers or one of them would have to go and that would have to be Simon. Because Matthew's in. You thought your family was messed up. But Jesus' call has a way of making us all equals. Let me tell you what I find hysterical and humbling About this whole thing. While there are times when I legitimately see myself as a loser, and times when I can identify with every loser in Dan's book that we've been talking about, Matthew shows me that I have created a hierarchy among losers, there's a loser ladder. There's a, there's a totem pole for losers. And at the bottom of the pole, I put the tax man. The cheating sellout, extortionist liar. The political sleazebag. The Hollywood trash queens. The pop culture perverts. And yeah, I'm on the pole, don't get me wrong, I, I'm there, I'm on I'm on the ladder but I'm just not as low down as they are. I'm not as disgusting and weird as she is because she's just gross. Somehow, even though my loser qualities are so open and so obvious, I judge the loser qualities in certain groups of other people like Matthew to be worse than mine. And the same is true for the label of sinner. How can I, a sinner myself, look down my nose and condemn others for their sin? Can I just be real and tell y'all right now I do it all the time? And I may not say it out loud, but I wonder in my heart how can you possibly be so awful? I mean, just a rotten excuse for a human being. How can you? We've got a really fancy, churchy, religious term for that. We call it hypocrisy. I am Matthew. I'm Matthew. And I stand in need, guys, of forgiveness. How can I condemn the sins of others, even other Christians? Who have fallen and damaged people's faith. But I'm just as guilty. I'm just as prone to sin and failure as they are. And when you really think about it. Jesus was harder on the hypocritical Pharisees than he was on anybody else. Why? Because they judged others as if they were above someone else's sin. Let me tell you what the Bible says. Galatians six and one says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves. Careful, careful, careful. Or you also may be tempted. So it, it, it's true. It, it's true that Matthew was a traitor. He, w- he was a sellout. He, he was a cheat. He, he was all those things and more. He, he, was, he was the worst kind of sinner. He was, he was even despised by other sinners. He was the worst kind of loser. Unwelcomed and unwanted by a bunch of other losers. Yet Jesus calls him to be a disciple. It's crazy. I don't want Matthew to be a disciple. I want Matthew to be fried by fire from heaven. But judging right and wrong is up to Jesus. And he doesn't need my help at all. But I need his help to heal this broken, sinful, hypocritical heart. I want you to take just a second. And I want you to think of the most reviled sinner that you know. Take a minute, think about it. The most reviled sinner you know. Not your mother in law, think somebody else. I mean, the worst of the worst. When Jesus stands toe-to-toe with that person that you've thought about and says, follow me. And that sinner, that reviled sinner responds and follows. How am I going to respond? How will you respond? will I dare to imagine that I am somehow above that sinner and their sin? Matthew's story, guys, is not only a story of grace and forgiveness for the lowest of the low, but it's also a call to self-examination and repentance for every other disciple that would judge him. Anybody know who Mike Warnke is other than me and Julia? A few of you. Mike Warnke, uh, 80s and 90s. He, he was a Christian comedian and speaker. And he he wrote an autobiography called Selling Satan. And it was about being a satanic priest. And it turned out to be a total sham. Matter of fact, most of the things that the guy did in his life turned out to be a total lie. And this guy's speaking to churches and coliseums, thousands and thousands of people. And and he's funny. He's hysterical. and And he's up there selling a lie about who he was and what he had done. He never was a satanic priest. They said he was basically just turned out he was kind of a strange college kid with an overactive imagination. He had at least one extramarital affair, maybe more complete fall. I mean, we've heard this story before, right? Somewhere in one of his performances, he said this. He said, when I stand before the throne to be judged... None of you is going to be sitting on it. We're all going to be on the same side. That's true for Matthew. It's true for the tax man that sold out his people. Sold out his God. It's true for Mike Warnke. It's true for Jim Baker and Hugh Hefner. It's even true for Nancy Pelosi. It's true for me too and it's true for you. So this week, guys, I have a simple call. Very, very simple. It's simply a call to repentance. Every day, starting today, I'm asking you to take one minute, one minute of your day and call your sin what it is. And ask Jesus to cover it with His blood. That's it. Plain and simple. Jesus, this is me. And this is my sin. And oh, how I need You. Can we pray? I knew it was going to go like this, Lord me getting all emotional here at the end and it's because i live with me man i need you i need your blood and forgiveness every single day multiple times a day but lord even on the days when i'm at my worst i still think i'm better than a whole bunch of other people that according to my values and teachings are worse off. And I don't think that's an attitude that comes from you. You invited everyone in. And you withheld your love and your blood from none. So apply that blood to me today. And I pray for a blood covering for every person in this room. Because we all need your righteousness. Because our righteousness is nothing. So Lord, this week, we're going to take a minute of every day. Lord, not to remind you of everything that we've done wrong. But Lord, just to be real with you. You love us in spite of it. You already know it. But we want to be real and transparent with you because we're only as strong as we are honest. So, Lord, help us to get real. Be real with ourselves. Be real with you. And then to accept the invitation that's still extended. Come in, come in, come in, come in. Come be a part. Follow me, walk with me. I want you the real you to be with me. Lord, we love you so much today. We thank you for being so good in Jesus.